Welcome to the Ohio State University Spring Quarter Commencement, recorded Sunday, June 11, 2006, at the Ohio Stadium. 5,523 graduates receive their diplomas. This quarter's commencement speaker is John S. McCain, United States Senator from Arizona. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to welcome you to the 376th commencement of The Ohio State University. I'm honored to preside at this important ceremony as the university bestows its academic degrees upon today's graduates. There are many rituals, receptions, parties, gatherings of friends and family associated with graduation, all focused on and perhaps serving as a prelude to today's very public event where those successfully completed a course of study to earn a degree are celebrated. And then there's always the question of what will be the graduation gift? Graduation is indeed a very significant landmark in your life that you may want to memorialize by means of a very special gift to symbolize the hard work you've invested, the sacrifices you and many in your family have made so you could reach this day. But the really significant gift is the one that each of you has earned on your own in partnership with fellow students and with faculty and staff. That gift is a new credential, an Ohio State degree, undergraduate, graduate, or professional, a piece of paper certified by your faculty that indicates you are prepared to enter into a career or profession, or perhaps even more characteristic of American education, even a range of fields. That credential is underpinned and validated by the reputation of your university, a reputation earned by the faculty and the students who have come before you. As welcome as a check, cash, special piece of jewelry, or some other item might be, the real gifts you take with you are not material gifts, but they are the intellectual interests and knowledge, the new skills and abilities you've gained, the confidence and conviction you've developed that you can take charge of your future and succeed. The real gifts you take with you are also the friendships and the networks of people who you can now call upon, the grounding you have in your chosen field and in your university, and the experience you've gained by working and living in a very diverse group of people who more closely mimic the society you join. You are now part of an institution that has been here for well over 100 years and will be for many more. These are the gifts that are part of an education. These are the gifts that will never be spent, lost, stolen, worn out, or placed in a drawer or on a shelf. Education is the gift that is the framework for your life. It is added to with your own development, and the value of this gift will continue to appreciate because of the quality of the generations of students like you who have selected the Ohio State University for their education. The value of your education can be understood even better when it's put in a broader context. 
When Ingrid Saunders-Jones, Senior Vice President for Coca-Cola, was on our campus a few weeks ago, she began a talk by describing the characteristics of 100 people who would be selected if they were to be representative of the world's population. She cited the percentages in that group that would have certain racial characteristics, religious beliefs, would be male and female, have certain levels of income, own what we consider standard possessions, such as homes and automobiles, and so on. But the most discouraging statistic she cited was that only one representative of those 100 people would have a college degree. The value of that degree, the value of education, the value of your gift is, as the TV ad goes, priceless. This statistic then suggests that it's also important to realize that the gift is not only for you, but needs to be shared with others in a responsible way. And whether you realize it or not, you have already started to do this with your university and your community. The contributions you have made have helped Ohio State evolve a little further and have contributed to its fine reputation. You have left your own legacy that will continue to attract the best faculty, staff, and students to come for years. Many of you have done a great deal of outreach in the community beyond the university and the state and the nation, and some of you even internationally. Thank you. You have clearly lived up to the university's motto, education for citizenship, and that will always be with you. I will close by saying what I say to all of our graduates. The world will expect you to do something great because you are a graduate of The Ohio State University. My most sincere congratulations to all of you and my very best wishes for a successful, happy, and healthy future. At each commencement, we ask a person of distinction to make remarks to our graduating class. This quarter, we have one of the best-known political figures of our age, a patriot and a war hero whose lifetime commitment to his country has taken him from Vietnam to Congress to the chambers of the United States Senate. Today, we welcome Senator John McCain as our featured speaker. John, thank you. John McCain was elected to the United States Senate in 1986 and is currently the senior senator from Arizona. He is chair of the Senate Committee on Indian Affairs and serves on the Armed Services Committee and the Commerce, Science, and Transportation Committee. The son and grandson of Navy admirals, Senator McCain, followed in their footsteps, enrolling in the U.S. Naval Academy at Annapolis at the age of 17. Following his graduation in 1958, he was commissioned as an ensign in the Navy and trained to become an aircraft carrier pilot. In 1967, Lieutenant Commander McCain was assigned to the aircraft carrier USS Forrestal to the, off the coast of Vietnam. After an explosion on board, he narrowly escaped a fire that took 134 lives. Just three months after the Forrestal disaster, his plane departed the USS Oriskany and was shot down during a bombing mission over Hanoi. He ejected, landing close to the bombing target. He was captured and taken to the infamous Hanoi Hilton, where he remained a prisoner of war for five and a half years. In 1973, after the Vietnam War ended, Senator McCain and nearly 600 prisoners of war returned home, ending the longest incarceration in U.S. history. 
After extensive rehabilitation, he regained his flight status. His last duty assignment was as the Navy's liaison to the U.S. Senate. He began his political career in 1982, winning election to Congress, representing what was then the first congressional district in Arizona. When Barry Goldwater announced his retirement from the Senate in 1986, Senator McCain was elected to succeed him. Now in his third term in the Senate, he was reelected in November 1998 with nearly 70% of the vote. In 2000, he ran for the Republican nomination for president. This morning, I was honored to join Senator McCain at a ceremony commissioning the university's Army ROTC cadets and all of the services, where I described him as one of the great, where he was described as one of the great leaders of our time, a national hero who has always stood for what he believes in. He, said, he is, and as was said earlier and repeated now, a strong example of the kind of American that every generation in this country's history has needed for its survival. Ohio State welcomes this distinguished statement, statesman as he addresses today's graduating class, Senator John McCain. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, faculty, families, and friends. Thank you, Ohio State University class of 2006 for your welcome and for your kind invitation to give this year's commencement address. I want to join in the chorus of congratulations to the class of 2006. This is a day to bask in praise. You've earned it. You've succeeded in a demanding course of instruction. Life seems full of promise, as is always the case when a passage of life is marked by significant accomplishment. Today, it might seem as if the world attends you. But spare a moment for those who have truly attended you so well for so long and whose pride in your accomplishments is even greater than your own, your parents. When the world was looking elsewhere, your parents' attention was one of life certainties. So I commend, as I commend you, I offer equal praise to your parents for the sacrifices they made for you, for their confidence in you, and their love. More than any other influence in your lives, they have helped make you the success you are today and might be come tomorrow. Thousands of commencement addresses are given every year, many by people with greater eloquence and more original minds than I possess, and it's difficult on such occasions to avoid resorting to cliches. So let me just say that I wish you all well. This is a wonderful time to be young and to have your opportunities make the most of them. When I was in your situation many, many years ago, an undistinguished graduate, barely, of the Naval Academy, I listened to President Eisenhower deliver the commencement address. I admired President Eisenhower greatly, but I remember little of his remarks that day. Impatient as I was to enjoy the less formal celebrations of graduation, and mindful, given my class standing, that I would not have the privilege of shaking the President's hand. I do recall vaguely that he encouraged his audience of new Navy ensigns and Marine lieutenants to become crusaders for peace. I became an aviator and eventually 
an instrument of war in Vietnam. I believed, as many of my friends, we were defending the cause of a just peace. Some Americans believed we were agents of American imperialism who were not overly troubled by the many tragedies of war and the difficult moral dilemmas that constantly confront soldiers. Ours is a noisy, contentious society and always has been, for we love our liberties much. And among those liberties we love most, particularly so when we are young, is our right to self-expression. That passion for self-expression sometimes overwhelms our civility and our presumption that those with whom we have strong disagreements, wrong as they might be, believe that they too are answering the demands of their conscience. When I was a young man, I was quite infatuated with self-expression, and rightly so, because if memory conveniently serves, I was so much more eloquent, well-informed, and wiser than anyone else I knew. It seemed I understood the world and the purpose of life so much more profoundly than most people. I believe that that to be especially true with many of my elders, people whose only accomplishment, as far as I could tell, was that they had been born before me and consequently had suffered some number of years deprived of my insights. <laughs> I had opinions on everything, and I was always right. I loved to argue, and I could become understandably belligerent with people who lacked the grace and intelligence to agree with me. With my superior qualities so obvious, it was an intolerable hardship to have to suffer fools gladly, so I rarely did. All their resistance to my brilliantly conceived and cogently argued views proved was that they possessed an inferior intellect and a weaker character than God had blessed me with, and I felt it was my clear duty to so inform them. It's, it's a pity there wasn't a blogosphere then. I would have felt very, very much at home in the medium. It's funny now how less assured I feel late in life than I did when I lived in perpetual springtime. Some of my critics allege that age hasn't entirely cost me the conceits of my youth. All I can say to them is, they should have known me then when I was brave and true and better looking than I am at present. But as the great poet Yeats wrote, all that's beautiful drifts away like the waters. I've lost some of the attributes that were the object of a young man's vanity, but there have been compensations which I have come to hold dear. We have our disagreements, we Americans. We contend regularly and enthusiastically over many questions over the size and purposes of our government, over the social responsibilities we accept in accord with the dictates of our conscience and our faithfulness to the God we pray to, over our role in the world and how to defend our security interests and values in places where they are threatened. These are important questions worth arguing about. We should contend over them with one another. It's more than appropriate. It is necessary that even in times of crisis, especially in times of crisis, we fight among ourselves for the things we believe in. It is not just our right, but our civic and moral obligation. Our country doesn't depend on the heroism of every citizen, but all of us should be worthy of the sacrifices made on our behalf. 
we have to love our freedom not just for the private opportunities it provides but for the goodness it makes possible we have to love it as much even if not as heroically as the brave americans who defend us at the risk and often the cost of their lives we must love it enough to argue about it and to serve it in whatever ways our abilities permit and our conscience requires whether it calls us to arms or to altruism or to politics i supported the decision to go to war in iraq many americans did not my patriotism and my conscience required me to support it and engage in the debate over whether and how to fight it i stand that ground because i believe rightly or wrongly that my country's interests and values required it war is an awful business the lives of the nation's finest patriots are sacrificed innocent people suffer commerce is disrupted economies damaged strategic interests shielded by years of statecraft are endangered as the demands of war and diplomacy conflict whether the cause was necessary or not whether it was just or not we should all shed a tear for all that is lost when war claims its wages from us however just or false the cause however proud and noble the service it is loss the loss of friends the loss of innocent life the loss of innocence that the veteran feels most keenly forevermore only a fool or a fraud sentimentalizes war Americans should argue about this war it has cost the lives of nearly 2500 of the best of us it has taken innocent life it has imposed an enormous financial burden on our economy and at a minimum it has complicated our ability to respond to other looming threats i believe the benefits of success will justify the costs and risks we have incurred but if an american feels a decision was unwise then they should state their opposition and argue for another course it is your right and your obligation i respect you for it i would not respect you if you choose to ignore such an important responsibility Americans deserve more than tolerance from one another we deserve each other's respect whether we think each other right or wrong in our views as long as our character and our sincerity merit respect and as long as we share for all our differences for all the noisy debates that enliven our politics a mutual devotion to the sublime idea that this nation was conceived in that freedom is the inalienable right of mankind and in accord with the laws of nature and nature's creator we have so much more that unites us than divide us we need only to look to the enemy who now confronts us and the benighted ideals to which islamic extremists pledge allegiance their disdain for the rights of man their contempt for innocent human life to appreciate how much unites us take for example the awful human catastrophe underway in the Darfur region of the Sudan if the united states and the west can be criticized for our role in this catastrophe it is because we have waited too long to intervene to protect the multitudes who are suffering dying because of it 12 years ago 
Twelve years ago, we turned a blind eye to another genocide in Rwanda. And when that range in terror, reign of terror finally mercifully exhausted itself with over 800,000 Rwandans slaughtered, Americans, our government, and decent people everywhere in the world were shocked and ashamed of our silence and inaction for ignoring our values and demands of our conscience. In shame and renewed allegiance to our ideals, we swore, not for the first time, never again. But never again lasted only until the tragedy of Darfur. Now, belatedly, we have recovered our moral sense of duty and are prepared, I hope, to put an end to this genocide. Osama bin Laden and his followers, ready as always to sacrifice anything and anyone to their hatred of the West and our ideals, have called on Muslims to rise up against any Westerner who dares intervene to stop the genocide, even though Muslims, hundreds of thousands of Muslims, are its victims. Now that, my friends, is a difference cause worth taking arms up against. All lives, all lives are a struggle against selfishness. All my life, I've stood a little apart from the institutions I willingly joined. It just felt natural to me. But if my life had shared no common purpose, it would not have amounted to much more than eccentricity. There is no honor or happiness in just being strong enough to be left alone. I've spent nearly 50 years in the service of this country and its ideals. I've made many, many mistakes, and I have many regrets. But I've never lived a day, in good times or bad, that I wasn't grateful for the privilege. That's the benefit of service to a country that is an idea and a cause, a righteous idea and cause. America and her ideals help spare me from the weaknesses in my own character and I cannot forget it. Let us argue with each other then. By all means, let us argue. Our differences are not petty. They often involve cherished beliefs and represent our best judgments about what is right for our country and humanity. Let us defend those beliefs. Let's do so sincerely and strenuously. It is our right and duty to do so. And let's not be too dismayed with the tenor and passion of our arguments, even when they wound us. We have fought among ourselves before in our history over big things and small with worse vitriol and bitterness than we experience today. Let us exercise our responsibilities as a free people, but let us remember we are not enemies. We are compatriots defending ourselves from a real enemy. We have nothing to fear from each other. We are arguing over the means to better secure our freedom promote the general welfare, and defend our ideals. It should remain an argument among friends, each of us struggling to hear our conscience and heed its demands, each of us, despite our differences, united in our great cause and respectful of the goodness in each other. I've not always heeded this injunction myself, and I regret it very much. I had a friend once, who a long time ago, in the passions and resentments of a tumultuous era in our history, I might have considered my enemy. He had come once to the capital of the country that held me prisoner, that deprived me and my dearest friends of our most basic rights, and that murdered some of us. He came to that place to denounce our country's involvement in the war that had led us there. 
His speech was broadcast into our cells. I thought it a grievous wrong then, and I still do. A few years later, he had moved temporarily to a kibbutz in Israel. He was there during the Yom Kippur War when he witnessed the support America provided our beleaguered ally. He saw the huge cargo planes bearing the insignia of the United States Air Force rushing emergency supplies into that country. And he had an epiphany. He had believed America had made a tragic mistake by going to Vietnam, and he still did. He had believed America, he had seen what he believed were his country's faults, and he still saw them. But he realized he had let his criticism temporarily blind him to his country's generosity and the goodness that most Americans possess, and he regretted his failing deeply. When he returned to his country, he became prominent in Democratic Party politics and helped pres elect Bill Clinton, President of the United States. He still criticized his government when he thought it wrong, but he never again lost sight of all that unites us. We met some years later. He approached me and asked to apologize for the mistake he believed he had made as a young man. Many years had passed since then, and I bore little animosity for anyone because of what they had done or not done during the Vietnam War. It was an easy thing to accept such a decent act, and we moved beyond our old grievance. We worked together in an organization dedicated to promoting human rights in the country where he and I had once come for different reasons. I came to admire him for his generosity, his passion for his ideals, for the largeness of his heart. And I realized he had not been my enemy, but my countryman, my countryman, and later, my friend. His friendship honored me. We disagreed over much. Our politics were often opposed, and we argued those disagreements. But we worked together for our shared ideals. We were not always in the right, but we weren't always in the wrong either. And we defended our beliefs as we had each been given the wisdom to defend them. David remained my friend and my countryman until the day of his death at the age of 47, when he left a loving wife and three beautiful children and legions of friends behind him. His country was a better place for his service to her, and I had become a better man for my friendship with him. God bless him. And may God bless you, class of 2006, the world does indeed await you, and humanity is impatient for your service. Take good care of that responsibility. Everything depends on it. And thank you very much for the privilege of sharing this great occasion with you. Thank you, Senator McCain, for the very great honor that you bestow on us by speaking to all of us here today and in commemoration of your wonderful remarks, which I think are very important remarks to all of the graduates. It's my pleasure to present you with the commencement medallion. Thank you. Thank you very much.